For November 18th, 2019, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 594, The Wasabi Conjecture. Welcome to Overthinking It where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier than when we are getting together in the kitchen, cooking up a little bit of this, a little bit of that, raiding the spice cabinet, trying to see, hey, you want to put some cumin on those chicken thighs? All right, sounds good. Uh, let's uh, let's let's just try it and see see what it is. Let's toast up some spices, grind them in our artisanal mortal mortar and pestle, and uh, you know just see what kind of stew we can cook up together. I'm Matt Rather. That's Peter Fenzel. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? And that's Mark Lee. Matt. To enjoy cumin is only human. <laughs> to forgive the chef who, who puts too much cumin in the chicken thighs is divine. Um, listen, uh, sometimes we just do one for ourselves. So, Pete, t- tell me what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> so I have a philosophical quandary that I would like to pose to the Overthinking It podcast crew. And it's one that I think has some pretty far-reaching implications and one that would, I think, maybe even serve to uh, undermine some of the significant things that I've said even on this podcast. So I would say that there is no – this is not a low-risk sort of conversation, but it's also one where uh, you know I'm offering this with with humility – and with kind of a questioning eye towards what this means. And it's about spices, right? And, but it's about so much more than spices. So the question, the dichotomy and the quandary is as such. Were I to ask you, why do we like spice, right? Why do we like spices? I feel like, or I think, that there may be two different ways to approach the question. And the first way and this is, of course, ascertaining that there is not we're not we're we're putting aside any sort of idea that the world has been designed in such a way that spices exist for the pleasure of humanity. We're, we're putting aside the idea that it has been made just so right that that everything is is that the reason we like spices is because we, uh, the most perfect world that exists, although maybe I should posit that as a third leg in the stool, the most perfect world that exists is a world where humans like spices, and therefore that's why humans like spices because we live in the best possible world right I this thought is that, the, the, like, I, yeah that's the anthropic principle right there's, exactly, there's, exactly there's a small range of spice <laughs> that we can that we could live in I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But no, no, but but the but the meat of the quandary, as it were, on which we sprinkled the spice is approach one. Seek out an anthropological or sort of a evolutionary explanation for what it is that might be beneficial about spices that would have prompted human beings over time to have selected for the trait of liking spices. Right. So so for example, studies have shown, you know, that certain spicy foods, uh, the plants might be producing toxins that might be killing germs or infectious agents, right? So so maybe we like spices because at some point in the past, there was a spicy food that killed an infection, and the humans who liked the spicy food, uh, the infection was killed, and the humans who didn't didn't eat the spicy food, and the infection killed them, right? So, so the, let's, so let's call this the, we'll call this the wasabi conjecture, because the, the wasabi and I, conjecture. And I'm almost, I'm 
almost certain that this is not true because it's it's too neat. Like it just doesn't have uh, it do, doesn't have the ring. It doesn't have the truthy. It has too much truthiness, rather. Uh, that wasabi is on sushi because the uh, whatever uh, sorts of microorganisms, whatever ever sorts of pathogens might live on raw fish are uh, dispensed with by by the horseradish by the wasabi. Right, right. And so then that's so the wasabi conjecture is approach one to the spice question and uh, the normative spice question, I suppose, or I guess and it's not normative, but I guess it's explanatory to this, this by various we're trying to we're trying to thread a needle here. Anyway, the second approach is to say, wait a minute, uh, there is there are millions of phytochemicals out there that are produced by billions of plants. Or millions, billions of phytochemicals by million, whatever it is. There's large number of phytochemicals uh, by a, rap- a rapidly declining but large number of phytochemicals produced by a rapidly declining but large number of different kinds of plants. And these, this, the flavors that we happen to like, are a selection from those phytochemicals of various sorts, right? And and we shouldn't necessarily uh, assume that there is anything special or normative about those chemicals, uh, they are spices because we like them, right? Like we may have developed a, or evolved a faculty that to enjoy a particular sort of flavor that is unrelated to the plants that produce it, or even the chemical qualities of the, of the other sorts of chemicals that might prompt the same sort of flavor reaction, uh, right? Like, like sugar and aspartame, right? Are nutritionally very different, uh, but we don't necessarily taste them as all that different. Uh, and then you can argue and, and, and guess and study what are the similarities and differences between sugar and aspartame. But the idea that if you can make a simulacrum of a spice that provides the sensation of the spice without providing the kind of chemical nutritive property of the plant that produces the spice that you're conjecturing under the wasabi conjecture is the reason that you like it, then why is it that you can think that the natural thing also must have like must have this quality or can have this quality and isn't just like aspartame with extra steps, right? Um, so I guess I could, I could, I mean, maybe the aspartame conjecture is a little bit off for that, but, but the idea being that like they are spices because we like them or, or we like spices because uh you know what um we like them because they are spices or they are spices because we like them would be the two ways that i would frame it i feel like this has a lot of implications for talking about well pop culture specifically but you know because that's the purview of this podcast but a lot of different ideas around taste in a both uh, literal and metaphorical sense so i want to pose that quandary to you guys and hear what you have to say about it because i'm curious can i just can i just jump in uh, mm-hmm. a, a couple of things. I mean, I feel like to to a certain to a certain extent, you're asking like Socrates, "What is the good?" You know, and that's uh... <laughs> aren't I always? Am I ever doing anything else than that? Um, I I guess actually, before I jump in, I w- I want to pull on this a little bit because I'm because you've made me curious. Is there anything recently that made you think? about the, that brought this topic to like top of mind for you like is there has something has something spice related happened in your life that you uh that you have been thinking about uh about these things or is it just apropos of, apropos of nothing in particular uh you have a you have a spicy question well, I, it was a reddit thread to be fair oh, got and it. I, what I would, and the way that the reddit thread was comprised right was uh, that most of the it was a question of why we like spices, and most of the answers were various sorts of 
evolutionary narratives about why, you know, we, you know, you know, Mowgli wandering around in the wilderness, you know, picks up the jalapeno and eats it and, and it helps him and he likes it. Right. Um, and I and again, I'm speaking a little bit dismissively because I think that there are faults to that kind of telling of stories about evolution and, and there's things that it gets wrong. But I wouldn't necessarily categorically dismiss that sort of narrative all the way across the board. And then there was one commenter, and you know, I should have even looked at who it was, who suggested that no, the spices are a largely random uh, selection from a wide variety of phytochemicals, right? Um, and we should not necessarily, it's not the spices that make us like them, it's us, it's us kind of investigating ourselves. And I thought that that one comment was really insufficiently explored in the thread and i wanted to bring it up to you guys because i feel like you would appreciate the what that comment is saying and the challenge that it's posing to the other narratives in the thread and maybe i'm i'm giving away a little bit of how i'm leaning here but i'm also open to being convinced and also to some sort of mix or balance between these two because i feel like they're very challenging ideas to wrestle with so then that is is the general you're, you're, you pose the question specifically about spices, but is the gen, is there a general form of your question, which is, are things good because we like them or do we like them because they're good? Is the, I mean, or are, are we really in a spice specific, uh, discourse drink or, or, you know, lick? I would even say I would, the good is interesting in this context. I don't, I mean, I might even pull back from the idea of the good, Maybe I can't pull, don't need to pull back from it entirely. But the notion of if you find something funny, right? If you find something compelling or interesting, if it makes you cry, uh, if there's something that you encounter that prompts a feeling in you or, or a pleasure, right? I think that we as you know, cultural commentators, as part of the sort of broader cultural commentariat class, right? Were, were we to arrive at a, cla- at, a, at a consciousness of ourselves as a class in ourselves, the regime we would bring to bear would be tedious at best. <laughs> but, uh, but, but there is sort of a class of cultural commentariat now who, who express uh, this almost, I mean, I, I would almost say it religious in the way that it kind of mystifies the thing. But, but it also feels religious because it's about making stories about things that you don't necessarily understand and the comfort that you take in narrativization. Like looking at a thing experiencing the thing, having a feeling because of it, and then trying to come up with the clearest narrative to explain your feeling based on what the thing is that you've just encountered. And I think that this would apply to a lot of things. I mean, one other thing that that sparked me about this was uh, just some people talking about There Will Be Blood, right? Like, which is, of course, one of the foundational movies of the Overthinking It podcast. And, and kind of sitting back and thinking about the spice question with regards to There Will Be Blood. Like, I can talk about a lot of the things in There Will Be Blood that I love a lot. And I can kind of identify them and I can and kind of go into the ideas and I can kind of deepen my own pleasure in that movie uh, by talking about the things about it that are challenging, good, bad, horrifying, beautiful, right, terrible, uh, exemplary, laughable, right? And all of the different little bits and pieces that I can kind of pick at in that movie – but I don't I'm not necessarily confident that the act of me talking to you about what I liked about that movie is necessarily going to arrive at a kind of normative, a satisfying sort of normative argument as to why this movie existed in a way that I were to encounter it and enjoy it. And I might even be suspicious if an argument were to come along that were to say in very simple terms, right? Well, actually, the reason that you like There Will Be Blood is because of, say, like its place in the culture, in a sort of broader cultural narrative, 
right? Uh, because because this is then a sort of microcosm macrocosm argument. And you're thinking, oh, so you think all of culture exists in a broad cultural narrative, uh, in much the same way that 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 seems similar to me to the idea that the plants exist and it ought to be considered due to the good or bad things that they do. Right. Like like when you encounter a plant in the world, categorize it with respect to the good or bad things that it does to people. And that's the best way that you can kind of understand what it is um, or don't. Right. Um, so either think about what it does for you or think about it as a thing in itself. You know, as a sort of like this is just a plant. This doesn't do this is don't eat it. It's a tree. Right. Like, <laughs> like It doesn't matter. Don't don't deal with it. But 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 I guess what I'm so the plants are a metaphor, I think, here. Um, and the spices are a bit of a metaphor, but I would also say that there's a strong cultural experience with spice that is also complicated. Does that does that flesh out sort of the elements of the question a little bit? Maybe maybe to think of another example, I could say something like, uh, I mean, I always defer to like Fast and the Furious, but I mean, what this week I watched this weekend I watched Ford versus Ferrari, and Ford versus Ferrari has a bunch of car chases in it, right? And it's like, well, why like car races? Why do you enjoy watching car races? Might be uh, an interesting question. Oh, right? Pete, but like, you've, you've the the uh, what is the what is the word in in um, Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis? The the slip of the tongue, parapraxis, yeah, sure. or something yeah. like that. The difference. Uh-huh. What, what what is the difference between car chases and car races? And that's <laughs> and that's like six years of psychoanalysis right there. Yeah, that's like sure. you're really going to have to you know. That's that's some like yeah. That's some like tell me about your parents type territory. I well, think. I mean, and the movie. I think if you've seen Ford versus Ferrari, it it treads in that territory a lot because it's car races filmed as car chases and narrativized as car chases. I think with villains and heroes and stuff um, in a way that's not foreign to race car movies. I, if you ever want, if you want to talk about Ford versus Ferrari, let's have a podcast where we. We all have watched it. Okay. But the main idea, the main simple idea, uh, yeah, but you're right. It's like every every step we take in any direction in this whole sort of quandary, I think, can just drop off instantly into like a hundred foot depth. You know, six, six miles down and we'll be dealing with the Meg or or the <laughs> underwater. Did you guys see have you guys seen the any of previews or advertising for underwater, by the way? The Kristen Stewart the Abyss horror movie where she's at the bottom of the ocean. Um it looked like the Meg, but not fun. Uh, but, uh, anyway, neither here nor there. That was one of the previews before Ford versus Ferrari. But the point being like, is there an intrinsic benefit or a sort of really heavily identifiable and persuasive cultural reason why we like to see fast cars race against each other? And, uh, and in that sense, and I think you can come up with some, but I wonder whether there really is, you know, whether it's really about the car, right? Or whether it's something like, is it the, something that we've encountered the car and the car has this sort of history with us and it means these things to us? Or is it that we want to see something that's like a car because of something that's about ourselves? And the car just sort of effortlessly steps into that niche, carrying with it all of its baggage of being like a manufactured object or like a metaphor for a horse or a metaphor for a penis or whatever it is you want to say, right? It's sort of like... um in terms of liking the thing that you like and associating it with narrative explanations for why that's the case, it's a question of where that operation happens, right? Does it happen in a sort of material way or is it more happening in kind of a subjective way? Uh, and, and the material way is like mysterious, um, I suppose. is okay. part of So it. you're, 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 you're using another dichotomy there, Pete. So like, yeah. let's just kind of suss out the first dichotomy, right? Of the, okay. Like, okay. Great. You know, do, do we like things that are, uh, that are good or are they good because we like them? That's, that's kind of what it boils down to, right? 
I mean, sure, um, we want to talk about that one. I, I, I guess I'm, 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 and I'm thinking out loud here, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> this is the podcast. This is what we do. We think out loud. Yeah, um, sure, of course. So on one hand, you're talking about, like, uh, I guess, like a, an overexplained or, like, overfitting phenomenon into narratives, right, with the evolution. And we, we like spices because uh, they have some sort of quasi-medicinal property and, like, self-selection, all that kind of stuff, right? right. And it seems like, Pete, like, you're not, you're not super into that, right? I'm- and you're, I'm not and you're more, sold on it. If it's, I'm not sold on it. No. And you're more into this kind of. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to find the right way to phrase this. Um, amorphous, like less uh, easily explainable kind of thing, where we derive pleasure, be it from food or from a movie, um, for well, for very unexplainable reasons, and just because we like it, therefore, it's good. And, yeah, even if whether they're, they're, they might be irrelevant, right? The reasons might be irrelevant to the thing you're encountering, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, uh, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think for both the Spice example and then for car chases or Terminator movies or what have you, like, uh, to quote uh, the, the parlance of our times, why not both, right? <laughs> there, there can be both of those things going on. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll switch over to the to the, the the film and and the entertainment analysis piece of it because I am I'm just kind of not as uh you know um, up to speed on like all that uh, sort of evolutionary biology stuff that you're describing although it's very interesting right like uh and on the entertainment side of things like we spend a lot of, just to be really clear Pete we spend a lot of time on this podcast trying to do some I don't know if narrative fitting is the right word for it, but a lot of exposit ex, expository work um, explaining the plumbing behind a lot of our pop culture and what makes them in our minds effective. Um, do we not do that, Pete? No, I think Did we you do. Agree or disagree? I, yeah. I, I think, I yeah. think we do. And that's why this quandary concerns me. So, I mean, we, we have a lot of that. I think we can point to, um, you know, from our formal and informal uh, education, you know, we, we've, there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of sound theory that we bring to the table and says that, you know, um, uh, this sort of narrative structure and these characters and these dichotomies that they bring to the table, um, those are part of the reasons why we thought that this movie was successful, why it gave us pleasure, um, both sort of emotionally and, uh, and, and intellectually. Like, there's that whole school of thought there that's all fine and good, right? And then there's the other side of, of, of the table, which I think we've also discussed and bring to the table here. Like, we just liked it because we liked it for, um, in, uh, in some cases, inexplicable reasons. Um, I mean, I think that the balance of our discourse probably uh, tilts towards the former rather than the latter. But I would like to think that we bring the latter to the table as well. No? Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's tricky, right? Um I mean, there's the the temptation then is to start really being precise and and slicing finer pines and saying, uh, I mean, so example that comes to mind, right? Because the way that you're bringing it up, uh, like the hero's journey, right? Hero's journey and Joseph Campbell talks about all the time. And I don't necessarily think we spend a lot of time talking about why the hero's journey in itself is like a good or desirable or pleasant thing. Right. Um, we talk about how it's this sort of pattern that's underlying a lot of different kinds of stories. And we talk about how how we sort of know that it has some sort of association through experience that people feel certain ways about it. Um, but I don't know if we really often dig down as much into this question of, you know, what is it about it? So so to provide a further example. Right. Um, 
you could look at a hero's journey in kind of an epic sense in the sense of, okay, well, part of why people like hero's journeys is because they uh, create this notion of a sort of social stability, right? That's desirable uh, because the way that societies are kind of carved out of a, you know, Hobbesian state of nature is this sort of violent act, this sort of original sin, if you will, uh, this sort of sense of discovery, uh, and, and, you know, it's 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 uh, somebody creates this thing and somebody has to be the person on the edge and then they build the society that everybody else lives in. And so if you live in a society, right, we all live in a society that is kind of created in the, with the sort of spirit of the hero's journey, then that would be one reason that you might think that it, that you would enjoy hero's journey story. Another reason that you might enjoy it, I'm going to give three reasons, right? The second reason you might enjoy the hero's journey story is because it's a generational story. It's really not about, it's not really about Aeneas founding Rome. The hero's journey is in much the same way as Katniss going to the capital isn't about, you know, fixing labor utilization. It's about children and parents. And it's about children kind of discovering the world and the, and sort of individuating from their parents and kind of confronting the deaths of their parents uh, as something that is going to happen at some point in the future or the present. And how is it that you step forward in, in this sort of Bildungsroman, you know, coming of age story kind of thing and yourself step into the role of an adult, right? And so, oh, the reason that we like it is because we all participate in this experience of growing up. Uh, and yes, not everybody likes it and not everybody participates in it, but there's a big overlapping fat part of the bell curve uh, where a lot of people identify with it because it speaks this kind of experience. I, I would say that the movie Labyrinth trades in this kind of thing a lot, where the labyrinth is very clearly like this woman's coming of age, uh, at least in the way that it's sort of being communicated to you in the words and symbols that are happening in the story. Is that the level in which it's affecting you? I don't know. You could also say, right, that the hero's journey is attractive in a sinister way because it reinforces imperial norms, colonial norms, right? That the hero's journey is really a way of tricking people into accepting the domination and exploitation of somebody else. And that you've been conditioned to like the hero's journey because you live in a society, right, uh, that has reinforced for you the idea that this is the thing that you're supposed to like. Uh, and it does this because it's part of this kind of brainwashing that it does to you that uh, separates you from, you know, your, the fruits of your own labor, right? So these are like three different explanations for why, like, the hero's journey might be something that you would enjoy. Uh, I think a lot of the criticism that you could use and sort of connections and discussions of what the hero's journey kind of is with regards to a particular sort of movie or or TV show can happen agnostic of any of those three explanations, right? It could You could talk about the hero's journey in uh, The Force Awakens without really caring whether the hero's journey is a positive social phenomenon, a negative social phenomenon, or a, uh, or I should say a positive uh, macro-political phenomenon, a negative macro-political phenomenon, or a uh, pluses and minus is kind of personal, generational, biological sort of phenomenon. Uh, and, and it would be fine. It would work whichever way you would do it. And that's part of the charm of these monomyth kind of ideas is that um, they, 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 I mean, what it tells you, right, is this is the monomyth. Uh, actually, no matter what else you come up with, you keep coming back to this story, right? This is the sort of idea that like, uh, you know, Sid Feld, uh, you know, carved tablets on Mount on uh, the Hollywood Hills and brought them down to everybody. This is how the stories work. Um, 
And again, we can investigate that and the history of storytelling and how it's kind of not quite exactly how that is. And there's a lot of incorrect ideas about history because I mean, and I say they're incorrect in the strict sense that they uh, they ignore counterexamples or are not participating in or ignorant of counterexamples. Um, different kinds of narrative. Right. But I would say that this is the kind of question I'm asking. Right. Like. Does it does it matter? Does the heroes if, if you encounter this thing that you like in the sense of like this hero's journey story and you're able to pinpoint it from a whole bunch of different directions? Right. Um, I, w- I would almost say like one of the one of the common arguments that you hear uh, from atheists with regards to, to theism is, well, if you say your God is right, then all the other gods uh, you're saying they're all wrong. Uh, why is it? easier for you to maintain the idea that one of them is right than it is for you to apply the reasoning that the God is wrong to your own God as you do to everybody else's. Um, and I think you can apply that same reasoning to kind of broad narratives about human society uh, and evolution of, of kind of people um, and their cultures in the sense that if you can come up with a simple explanation for why all people are the way they are, uh, then why is your explanation better than all of the other ones? Uh, now, then again, I'm not necessarily a strident atheist, right? Like, I'm not, I don't consider myself an atheist at all. Uh, so I'm not saying that that argument is necessarily persuasive. But I'm interested in it because it seems like something of a blind spot in the way that the commenter area are also talking about pop culture, right? Like, like you know, if, you're, if your hero's journey is this, if your hero's journey is that, if your hero's journey is that, you know, what makes you think that your one explanation for the underlying why, right, is better than other people's explanations for the underlying why. And that's not like that's a question that's never answered, but I think it's a tricky idea. Um, I mean, I don't know, Matt, am I making any sense here talking you, about all this stuff? You are. I want to, I want to take a uh, complete left turn and go into okay, an, go in, go into an area that's going to seem like it's not related, but is absolutely related. <laughs> Okay. So a while ago, um, in a, a relationship that I am in no longer, uh, my counterpart in that relationship, she and I decided that we would seek out couples counseling. And um, she was pretty sophisticated about this sort of stuff and selected a methodology of couples counseling uh, that was created by a guy named Stan Tatkin that is called PACT, or, or Psychobiological Approach to Couple Therapy. And the... Uh, the, um, it is a talk therapeutic technique, but one that is informed by, you know, recent or uh, actually not even that recent one, one that applies, um, to talk therapy, some ideas, some like kind of updates it with ideas about what we understand about, uh, people's nervous systems and how, how they become activated. And, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the point of this approach, uh, in uh, not in, not in practice, not in the actual sort of therapeutic part, but in the um, uh, you know in the theoretical part, which of course I delved into. Me being me, I delved way into before you know embarking on this uh, uh, sort of exploration and and uh, treatment, such as it was. Uh, I mean, it didn't work, but the 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 approach was still interesting. Um, was that? Uh, your brain is a terrible interpreter of its own experience, right? And that the, the, what the sort of the front parts of the brain that I, I don't, I'm not good at 
brain structure names, but like we're, we're all down with the idea that there's sort of an old brain and a new brain and the old brain deals in things like, uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system arousal, right? Where you get, um, where you get worked up about something, where you perceive threat in your environment and, you know, you, you get a fight or flight response or you get a, uh, you know, some sort of, or freeze fight, fight, uh, flight or freeze, right? And you, and then a parasympathetic discharge, which is the, ah, after the, after you like, ah, that's, you know, that sort of, um, that, that horror movie, uh, kind of pattern, you know, and that like, uh, that, 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 that belongs sort of in, in the old brain and the kinds of things that are perceived as threats actually don't make it to the level of like conscious analysis and reasoning, um, that this is, uh, you know, uh, and that a lot of our experience and especially our experience of, of sort of intimate things of, of like things in your life, things that have to do with survival, things that kind of trend downward on Maslow's hierarchy of needs happen at the level of the, the old brain, the sort of, you know, lower back down kind of brain. And then the, like the, analysis of it happens in the front parts of the brain um afterwards now i would love to be well actually by uh by an actual uh scientist who can who can go more into the the specifics of the the sorts of structures involved but like as a as as a general thing or are, are we okay yeah. so far with what is yeah. uh with sort of what's on the table to elaborate a little bit, one example would be that if you have a memory of a bad thing that happened and you have a strong aversion to a bad thing that happened or something associated with it, that would be the interaction of your hippocampus where your memory is is being uh, processed to an extent and your amygdala, right, which is well known for creating these sorts of gut reactions related to trauma and prejudice. And but your executive function is up in your prefrontal cortex. Yes. And so you people think that something like, for example, your prejudice, right, is something that you can overcome using executive function. But like anatomically, you can't because there are different parts of your brain that are not right next to each other that are handling these functions in different ways that you're not entirely aware of. Yeah, this is yeah. this is actually perfect, Pete, because I actually know I was going to at the beginning um, cite a counterexample example of uh, uh is i was about to say your question is spice good because we like it or do we like it because it's good um it, it, i was going to say your your question assumes facts not in evidence i once knew uh, a guy who did not like spices because he was a racist and that was <laughs> and in it's I, funny because it seems it seems intuitively actually very easy to understand <laughs> and and for whatever reason this this person um uh, associated spices in a way that I'm not even sure that he could articulate uh if you put it to him uh associated them with you know the despised other but um but anyway right so despised or despised <laughs> no he was despised <laughs> he was despised and the other was despised because he was spiced <laughs> um so the uh yeah so so right and then this is related if you've read the like the daniel kahneman thinking fast and slow mm-hmm. book which is the popular book that that is based on his you know lifetime of research um the uh you know or some stuff and and it you know so in in terms of in actually it it was very interesting like in terms of dealing with uh 
in terms of of relationship, it actually there was a lot. Uh, put in this particular therapeutic approach that was like your job in a relationship um, has nothing to do with like being right or wrong. has nothing to do with with anything that you think of as meaning making right with anything that is sort of semiotic like at a very basic level your job in a relationship is to make your partner feel safe and their job is to make you feel safe to uh, you know like not cause that sort of threat response, that sort of nervous system activation, and uh, to sort of learn your own and their uh, nervous systems, learn the, uh, as it was put, the the playbook on, you know, on that person, and, um, you know, to, to sort of help them in, uh, you know, in life as they uh, help you to, um, you know, to, to sort of negotiate all of the, all of the BS of life, you know, in a way that is much easier if you have, if you have someone outside of you looking out for your, your nervous system and, and mutually uh, you looking out for theirs. So, so I want, I want to like, so this is, this sort of, this was my uh, introduction in a practical term to this idea and, and was because it was, there were kind of some stakes in this conversation um it was even more kind of uh uh it it resonated even more than like reading thinking fast and slow or reading like the dan Ariely, you know behavioral economics books and stuff like that um much earlier in my life so the the uh the the thing so i want to kind of make two points one one which i've laid the groundwork for and the other that i haven't one is that um we're actually what we're doing when we are doing overthinking, right? Or what we are doing when we are ex post facto narrativizing um, phenomena uh, that that we experience. And that when we're we're um, narrativizing experience, right? Uh, is different than what we think we're doing when we're when we're narrativizing experience, right? Because we're not actually. Um, we're not actually capable of really commenting at the level of reality because we don't understand the reality because the reality happens too quickly to, uh, to really process in, in a cognitive way. Um, the second thing is that, uh, that we have to be, I think, really very precise and, and a little bit careful about the different ontological status, uh, statuses of the different kinds of claims that we make at different times. Because I think that in, in talking about a movie, in talking about, um, uh, the Fast and the Furious, right? We do, we're, we're sort of operating at a number of different levels of abstraction, at once, and we move up and down them in a way where there's there can be some kind of slipper, slippage in uh, in the thing that, that we're talking about, right? And and that like the sorts of claims associated with one level of abstraction can kind of slip down, can can like really get confused with the sorts of claims. Um, uh, associated with another level of abstraction. So one of the things that the prefrontal cortex is very good at is pattern recognition, right? And uh, this is why when 
this is why truthiness always should give you a little pause. When something, when an explanation, when a sort of potentially apocryphal explanation of something comes up in life, and it's just a little too pat, it just fits a little too well. It really makes too much sense of all of the available evidence. I, I would say that like one one heuristic that I, I try to employ is that like that's probably wrong, right? Or at least doesn't doesn't take into account all the uh all the texture um of the experience. But the the I, I'm I'm reminded of what um what our Pete and my great teacher John Hollander used to say in talking about poetry and talking about poetic criticism. Um and he was a very it's funny, he was a very like high flown intellectual kind of guy. And in another way he was very kind of uh very sort of feet on the ground and no BS. He said, look, all criticism at some level is like Someone saying to someone else, hey, hey, you see this one thing? Isn't it kind of like this other thing? <laughs> you know, and that, that was that at, at some level, that's the basis of all like artistic criticism is pattern recognition is sort of drawing similarities uh, between things, similarities that highlight similarities, similarities that highlight differences, um, you know, and and uh, kind of pointing pointing those things out now. That doesn't get at the experience, right? That that's sort of ex post facto. You know, that's that happens um, in a different headspace, in a non, you know, in in sort of slow thinking in the Daniel Kahneman uh, terminology. It happens after the actual kind of arousal and discharge of the of the actual experience, and it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily tell you. Um, a lot about uh, it doesn't necessarily tell you a lot about what makes something good or how you would like to do something any more than like you know watching Sports Center is going to make you a better basketball player, right? And what we do <laughs> is sort of a Sports Center, you know. We we uh, uh, and and the, it gets tricky because the way we do it at sports center is it's is kind of its own sport but um but it's not you know it's not the thing itself it's not the the sort of the time it's not the time on the court between the the you know the 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 whistle and the buzzer you know it's not that um that uh a real real experience and so i think that i think that we have to be sort of careful when when we talk about um when when we talk about these things and when we talk about what's good uh or uh, when we talk about what we like about something to interrogate our uh perceptions not just uh in themselves but also kind of be a little circumspect about the status the the kind of the ontological status that they have that you can you know what what arena uh even we're playing in now this doesn't get at the spice question at all yet but i feel like it's important prolegomena to they are i should say important prolegomena to uh any future uh meta spice physics oh man so my first reaction in hearing you say all that which makes a lot of sense to me is to come up with this particular example which i was thinking of just the other day there's a particular brand of pop culture that we very seldom talk about, that we all experience, uh, which is the constant, constant stream of con artists 
attempting to trick us into signing over money to them on a long-term basis, right? And I'm talking about all the phone calls that each of us get that certainly uh, the people, uh, the okay boomers of the world are getting more and more as they become more elderly and more susceptible to abuse and, and tricks and tricking and defrauding, right? Um, and, then, and so one, I got a letter the other day and I opened it up and it was saying, hey, you know, you could change to clean energy, right? Uh, and there's this there's this thing which I don't know who put this thing in place, but it's terrible. Um, and I mean, maybe it has some extrinsic benefits. And I don't necessarily go on the, to the record a lot about particular things about politics, but this thing is like a constant, constant, incessant target of fraud. And I really, and or at the very least, misguiding and manipulation. And I and I really wish there was some sort of accountability for whoever put this in place. Which is that in I don't know if you guys do this, but in Massachusetts, you know, we have a, a public utility right for our town and uh and but the public utility is decoupled from the energy supplier and so you have the option of selecting your energy supplier and the energy supplier through complex accounting right but of course i'm sure everybody thinks that it's through plugging a wire into your house which is not what's happening but through some sort of complex accounting and trading that energy supplier is the person who supplies the energy to your house and then they charge you a bill and it's still administered by the public utility and so what you have are these armies of people who are going around house to house on maybe like a once every three to six months uh, trying just to get people to either say yes under any circumstances to any question or to get you to get your energy, your your electric bill, so that they can look at it and write down your account number and defraud you by saying that you said yes. Because as soon as you say yes, they can change the supplier for your electricity, and then there might be some sort of introductory rate, and then it's going to spike, and they're going to charge you a whole bunch of money. And, so to make and this all this oddly full circle, we had those people in the lobby of my movie theater. Oh, so you have this too. Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm on my way to see a movie to go see the overthinking podcast. Yeah, there's uh, someone who's trying to fraud me about with my electricity bill. Sorry, continue. Now I'm not saying that all energy suppliers are con artists, but I am saying that the way this is set up is very attractive to con artists and also to people who are looking for work and who, um, upon finding a job posted online that you can get soon, <laughs> right, will be like, I need it. I will go get it. I have also like briefly worked for con artists. Uh, I don't recommend it, <laughs> right? Like I think I, I think I had a job with one of those pyramid scheme kind of charity things for like three hours before I realized that it was a scam and left. Uh, I didn't actually get anything accomplished. But at any rate, the point being, I got this letter in the mail that said, you can get clean energy. How do you do it? You just sign this thing and send it back and you get clean energy. What's clean energy? It means it doesn't pollute. It doesn't send emissions into the atmosphere. Uh, what changes? Nothing. You have your same utility. You just get clean energy from clean energy trademark or whatever it is, right? Like, it's just like, okay. And so what I'm saying here is, you know, the narrative that's presented in this letter is like laser targeted at your your pattern recognition, right? And this sort of like, this looks like something I've seen before. And like, oh, this story, I feel good about this story because it's simple and it makes sense, right? Now, of course, if you have, you know, practical experience with utility companies, you would know that there should be a lot more disclosure and like a lot more complexity to this, right? If you were actually getting the information that you needed, the letter wouldn't be nearly so simple. And I was thinking about how, about the burden of trying to educate my kid, you know, my son in the future, uh, you know, and, you know, and if they change what they want to be, it's all good. The point is not the gender of the kid, it's the, it's the future and, uh, and educating them right about how to watch out for these kinds of scams, 
Right. And then the idea that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. While people might say is like, you know, hey, stop being so skeptical. Why are you be a good thing? You should have clean energy, whatever. Maybe they weren't bad guys. Um, and also as somebody who like professionally deals a lot in trying to explain things in a more simple way that are very complex. Uh, right. It's like, well, simplicity itself isn't necessarily bad, especially when you're dealing with complex systems. If you can, in an elegant way, reduce it down to some simplicity that can be understood, that's probably better than it being totally obtuse and nobody able to understand it outside of a trained professional. Uh, but this idea that, like, we all already know that if you come across something that sounds too good to be true, then you should not pay attention to it. And we know this because we get called on the phone like five times a day with these exact same sorts of things. And the only way in which they are not uh, you know, approaching us in this way is if they're speaking a language that we don't understand. And then it's just nonsense. But, uh, but you know what I mean? So it's like, so we experience and know on a day-to-day basis that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And yet we... We continue to participate, and I mean, I, I can't help but say this in an accusatory manner, but I don't really mean to accuse, but it's like that function doesn't leave, right? Like that part, there's also so much about life that's kind of about that, right? And I mean, you mentioned relationships, right? Like the purpose of a relationship is not to make things needlessly complicated, right? Like the purpose of a relationship is not to like fully articulate at every point, like all the strengths, weaknesses, goods and bads and positives and negatives so that your partner can make like an informed decision about whether to keep hanging out with you. Right. Like, um, that's not really what it is. Right. I mean, there, but at the same time, it's oh. not just about the front. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, I gotta, I mean, I gotta I, write some <laughs> apology emails. I, I mean, I'm just saying that it's like, you know, contracts are this idea that is not particularly human, uh, but that shapes a lot of our lives. Although that in and of itself is like, well, why are contracts good? <laughs> that is the whole other question. But yeah, it's like, um, these different sorts of ways of thinking and these ways in which we crave these sorts of simple narratives, I mean, if if there isn't a place where it's okay to encounter it, like if there's any place where it's okay to encounter that sort of thing, one would think it would be in a movie theater, right? Where it's like, well, this is fiction, right? And so, uh, so you shouldn't really be too concerned about the fact that this is all a little bit too simple because it's not real. And um, – Maybe there are underlying values that are being discussed. Maybe there are sort of themes and reasons of things that are being talked about. Uh, but you can at least know that you're not being like deliberately misled about reality in like a conscience active way most of the time. If if it's like, well, this purpose of this, we have an agreement that the purpose of this is entertainment. Yeah, you know, there are – and I even say that. I'm like, well, of course that's not true because you're always being misled. But relative to what, right? Because then somebody else will say, well, really, you should be misled in this direction. Um, and it just keeps circling around and around. Um, this is also one of the reasons why I don't watch a lot of documentaries um, I think that I find documentaries that to be like inferior to fiction in certain ways with regards to like applying narrative pattern tools to understanding things just because once you're when you're dealing with real world stuff, um, my my BS detector just starts going off constantly. And so it's just really hard. It's really hard to watch documentaries because if one thing comes up that's wrong, I'm like, ah, oh, I, you really, I can't trust you anything like, you're saying. You really like history podcasts, though. What's up? You like history podcasts a lot, though, right? I do. I and do. I like history. Yeah. So it's um, you know is what 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 is the really what's the difference, Pete? I guess I mean at this point the word documentary seems to have become synonymous with like the Netflix polemic, like yeah, the sure, sort of Netflix enough. pamphlet that tells you you shouldn't go to SeaWorld, right? Um, where it's like, I mean, and again, yeah, maybe you probably I, shouldn't. You know, go I don't to want to say that it's okay to mistreat killer whales, 
But it's like, you know, there's so many documentaries that have such a very clear expository purpose. And 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 by virtue of being documentaries, they're happening over like a short period of time. But I love like certain documentaries, you know, I loved I loved last year I saw I'm Not Your Negro and I thought it was great. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. We, so we even talked about the one about uh, Leonard Cohen that we yeah. watched like on the podcast. And I thought that was a really good movie and I really enjoyed it. Part of it, I think, was that it resisted making like a really, really specific, clear, polemical point about Leonard Cohen. Sure. Um, right. Like it had, it had a lot of things to say, but it wasn't like this is what you need to leave the theater believing about Leonard Cohen. Um, and then the problem with that isn't necessarily that it would be wrong, but that by if you make it too simple, I have to, I feel like I have to be so conditioned as the enemy of my own brain. Right. To be like, ah, I can't trust that because it feels too trustworthy, <laughs> which maybe is, I guess, another pro you can write that down in a relationship book. Right. As like yep. another problem that we all have <laughs> where it's like, well, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, well, what about the things that are good and true then? Like, do they just get left out in the cold? <laughs> right? Like it's uh, it's tough, man. I don't know, Mark, does any of this make any sense to you? I feel like I'm just spinning around in this sort of semiotic wilderness without without a uh, an oar to clasp on to write my sh- my metaphorical ship and my potentially exploited. Uh, narrative of crossing the ocean. Um, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I'll just very briefly validate your, like, uh, your, your skepticism. <laughs> I'll, I'll very briefly validate your skepticism of documentaries, right? You know, just uh, for uh, let's talk about that for a hot second, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a medium where it's presenting things as quote unquote documentary truth, but there's so much selective editing uh, up to uh, leading up to manipulative editing uh and just like the very act of selecting for i'm going to tell the story while leaving out this whole narrative um yeah. uh gross has, has a huge potential to gross to distort the truth um i'll just uh, also put on the side there like the whole searching for sugarman documentary which is fascinating um and tells a story about this musician who's like presented as a complete uh nobody but then is like rediscovered the, <laughs> the documentary neglects the part where he like uh had a number of notable performances like in australia or some like other far-flung part of the world um which grossly undercut uh the, the broader point that the that the movie was trying to make um did it uh kind of uh, ruin the the core story of it. Uh, well, it's, it's it's arguable for it, but um, oh, to get back to kind of a broader point here, I'm I'm, I'm working on this, working on this. So, um, the okay, so uh, going to the movies, seeing a a a, 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 um, a fictional narrative, um, it's 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 working out on a, an emotional level, all fine and good, right? And we can accept that that, and then like we apply a ton of post hoc rationalization. Right. To it afterwards, which may or may not sync up with um, the just the the visceral lived experience uh, and the, the tension to release of, of of actually having seen it. Um, yeah, no, like uh, this this all like is 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 are, are good things that we're that we're bringing up in, on the podcast because like it's um, it, it all like via, understood that um, that it's in the background before we sit down and hit record for this um so yes i'm happy that we're talking about this um there was some point i I wanted to bring up as well as as we were spooling all this out as like you know this is a uh, well so this is all you know by and large what we do here is post hoc um rationalization and analysis of pop culture phenomenon and it's not um us actually you know hitting the paint and hitting the basketball court in the same way that um that um uh, uh george miller does when he makes mad max Fury road that being said this too is an act of creating a piece of pop culture and, and creation, right? And that we are applying in um, in its own limited way uh, the same skills that George Miller is using when he's creating a, an epic blockbuster. 
<laughs> movie. I just wanted to put that little little nugget of thought out there and then turn it back to the rest of you guys talking about spices or, uh, or, or various other forms of post-hoc rationalization. Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, you know, this podcast is Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, we do it because we enjoy it, right? And And I mean, I don't know. I'm torn because on one hand, that seems like the most defensible thing to do. But on the other hand, that seems like the least defensible thing to do, right? I mean, I, every once in a while in our conversations, it comes up with the idea of whether we should be doing something more important with our time. Uh, I know I've certainly received letters from relatives to that effect, um, but uh, which I've promptly thrown out. But uh, but uh, but the but it's so on one hand, it's like you know, oh, you're just talking about things that aren't real, right? Uh, why would you be wasting your time doing that when you could be talking about things that are real and matter? But then I'm thinking, well, yeah, but if I were applying these same Dude, faculties let me, to things let me, that were real. Yeah, let me ask yep. these people. Let me interrogate these straw men and women that you've, that you've <laughs> brought to the table in our conversation. Um, straw men and straw women, do you watch sports? <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> but but I guess the idea is that like if we are going to sort of revel in these sort of socially I think I think that they do have some sort of socially galvanizing characteristic right um these these sort of discussions of mutually recognized patterns there's there definitely seems to be some dimension of it that seems to really connect with a lot of people and I'm not here to necessarily justify them from an extrinsic standpoint but like if you're to engage in this kind of activity uh, and I would even say, like, what if you inevitably engage in this kind of activity? Right? Is it better to apply this kind of narrativization to real world things when you know that you will be doing it as a disservice rather than speaking about it through fiction? But yet at the same time, as you pointed out, Matt, I often I hate the idea of literature as bad history. And I will often prefer to listen to, like, you know, history podcasts or read long historical biographies rather than read like allegorical polemics about particular history sorts of things. It's really only when you boil it down to a very kind of, you know, breezy two and a half hours that I really don't like it. Um, when you're taking like huge big things and you're making them into sort of snackables, uh, that's when I'm like, ah, you know, if this were if this were 100 episodes that were each 45 minutes long, I would start to trust it a little bit more. Uh, but also there's that sense of like, is it adequately researched? Am I getting to see all of the sources, all that other stuff? Um, but yeah, I don't know. On what, yeah, because because it's like part of why I feel a little bit paralyzed in the world, I think, is because I feel like this is like a faculty of engagement that I bring to like everything that I do. And I wonder if you're similar to me in that respect. We've certainly been doing this for long enough that perhaps we've even shaped each other. Even if we weren't destined to be like this, you know, here's our bed and we lie in it, right? Um, how do you engage with a world knowing, right, that, uh, you know, you are applying these kind of faculties of narrativization and explication to things that you know are reductive and, and inescapably so? Right. Like you can never say anything that's really going to be adequately, fully and adequately true. Uh, and so as such, you feel compelled to relate it to fictional subjects. So you don't give lie to the truth. Right. Wherever it is, how imperceivable it might be and sort of buried somewhere. Right. Like if it even, you know, and then there's the idea of like, well, does it exist or not exist? And if you can't figure out what it is, does it matter? Right. Um, is are these so, sort of like pressing questions? Uh, really, what I'm talking about is like, do you like having cumin on pizza uh, or does cumin have to be on Indian food? <laughs> Dude, that's gross, Pete. <laughs> Don't put pineapple on my pizza. 
Uh, now I'm gonna. Now that's now. Now I've done it. Right? Like it, it's uh, now. To, to be now quick, to now be we're gonna get more hate mail than anything else <laughs> that we've ever said on overthinking it. Right? Pizza more toppings, hate. good or bad? Uh, just so we're not misinterpreting you, Pete. Like you don't operate this like all the time, right? <laughs> it's not like you know a constant twenty four or seven, uh, like uh, like like Chidi Anagonye in. Um, in in the good place, right? Who's like constantly racked with indecision and is overthinking everything and overthinking his overthoughts for everything like uh, everything small and infinitesimal, right? You're 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 talking about like um, uh, you know you, you turn this faculty on more often than others. Is that fair to say? Yeah, like, I guess here here I'll I'll present to you two sort of modes of thinking in which I spend like most of my time. One of them is the overthinking it method, and that's the method that I enjoy the most, which is to sort of open myself up to the observation of something that's happening and allow the pleasure of recognizing and participating in the patterns of that thing. And and, and it's sort of to participate in the beauty of the thing that I am watching. And it might be something as simple as like walking down a subway platform and like, oh, they installed new lights. And because they installed new lights, like everything looks different. Right. Like, that's really strange. Right. That's really interesting. Uh, And it more works on a paradigm of like what's interesting or not interesting than necessarily what's good or bad. Uh, And it's sort of this this sort of like I like to go outside and kind of see what the world is like. And this is sort of a perspective that you 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 live in a lot, I think, or at least I would live in a lot as a runner for when I was running for a long time or as some and whenever I go to these sort of like exercising trance states or creative trance states like an improv or whatever it's like recognizing all the patterns and kind of participating in them and as such kind of feeling part of a sort of warp and weft of the world right uh that that the world is sort of this spiraling bunch of networks and patterns and the people that i know and it all has this sort of beauty to it and then the other way which is the way that i kind of get work done and kind of accomplish things is this sort of uh uh, re-explanation phenomenon where um, I would say that I encounter the details of a particular situation and I want to make sure that I have it right. And so I, I sort of repeat it to myself. Uh, and, and you can even say this is simple as sort of making language out of, you know, of stimulus. So like, for example, you're at work, you know, you get a spreadsheet, you get a sort of executive summary that of the spreadsheet that tells you what's in the spreadsheet. You look at the spreadsheet, you try to determine whether the spreadsheet is actually saying what the summary says. And in order to do this, you kind of have to re-narrativize what's going on in the spreadsheet, right? Um, a b- big thing that I do at work is kind of like I get I get sent descriptions of things, and I, I then interview the person who sent me the description and I ascertain from the interview whether they've adequately described what they're talking about, right? Or whether I need to like make refinements because, and this is the kind of thing that I, that I say always in both situations. And this dovetails what Matt was talking about before, right? When we are talking, something is lost. Like you have in your own mind the conception that you know what you're talking about, but but speaking or writing or typing is a physical act. Uh, then it's an act of translation, and there's information that's lost. So so for example, right? If I were to tell you a story, and I use this in improv noting sometimes, say to where I were to tell you a story about your my day, and and I told you all about my day, but I neglected to mention my mouthwash running out. Right? Like this morning, I ran out of mouthwash. This is actually kind of a big deal for me because I wear Invisalign at night, and if I don't have mouthwash, I don't. Have 
have what it takes to clean my Invisalign, and then I don't know how I'm going to go to sleep. So running out of mouthwash in the morning is a ticking clock that affects a lot of what happens over the course of my day. Uh, it shouldn't. I should just go buy more mouthwash, but I'm a warrior, right? And so, like, I neglect to tell you this. And then I sort of ask you, let's say we were in a theatrical setting, to perform elements or scenes from my day, right? Now, if you were to perform a scene for me that didn't include my anxiety over my mouthwash, I'm in no position to tell you that you did it wrong because I didn't say it, right? And because I didn't say it, because I left it out of the story, for you, it doesn't exist, right? It existed in my but, – but when you tell me – Everything else, if you were to say, oh, well, he had the egg sandwich and then he went and played Frisbee, right? In my mind, I'm associating it with all the details that I know and I haven't told you because I made a mistake when I told you those things, right? And so it makes sense if you're really trying to suss out the truth of something that's complicated. I like to use the technique, I mean, I guess almost a Socratic-esque sort of technique of like asking questions, right? Being like, okay, what about this situation? What about that situation? What do you mean like by this? Does it mean this or does it mean that? And you're trying to really parse into sort of a very fine idea of what's really going on and that's and the idea between behind that is integrity right is like bringing an integrity to your attempt to explain something to somebody um and and the thing is that when i do that i'm doing it for the service of somebody else almost all the time and i very rarely do it in my own interest but it's always like somebody is i'm being brought in and i'm being paid to explain to somebody a really complicated thing that other people are having difficulty explaining and this this sort of reinterrogation of the truth that happens and really it's about not believing the story that you're told not because they're lying but because it's tough and because it's just the nature of people communicating with each other that 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 when we simplify we miss things and that when we narrativize we miss things and and we don't know everything that we we don't know what we know we don't know how smart we are right we we can't necessarily always get across everything that we're trying to say um and so those are the two those are the two ideas right those are the two sorts of ways of thinking that i spend most of my time in other than just sort of abject terror which i think a lot of people experience a fair amount of their day but you gotta, <laughs> get like, that, you, you know. gotta get that parasympathetic discharge pete you gotta like you gotta i don't re- do your california nonsense rest man. rest <laughs> and digest just let that you got that that stuff has to go you're you're uh shredding your your nervous system i want to to uh end with two lines of poetry and one and one uh thought about spices okay um one is uh near, from near the end of the wasteland uh it's these fragments i have shored against my ruins and uh it's a sort of it's a sort of description of the entire poem that's gone before <laughs> however however many uh however many hundreds of lines it has been Elliot is sort of saying that like as we don't get much recompense for uh the dislocations and sort of discontinuities of modernity but you you make a kind of patchwork of ideas and images and and sounds and you know meanings and uh the patchwork you know your sort of your motley um coat you know is uh is what you have to to protect you from um you know the 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 sort of terror without from from the sort of thing that pete said half facetiously and all in earnest about like being mostly terrified about about life most of the time i think we're i think a lot of us are like that more than than we care to admit and these fragments um, these fragments I have shortened against my ruins. I, I once had some, some perhaps not very, uh, 
not very um, capable of of dealing with the real world artist friends who you know like we're always short on money and always were oh I made it through somehow all, all the time but never you know we're sort of anarchists and whatever and and um, their favorite objection to one like I I would suggest that perhaps they should pay their rent or find a way to pay you know was like man that's just a construct you know that's just a construct and I, I once or twice pointed out that a house is just a construct but it is really nice to live in one these fragments i have shored against my ruins the other thing um is uh for um is from auden's uh, uh in memory of wb yates and uh from the second section of that uh he writes uh, poetry makes nothing happen He's talking about about whether you know Yeats's poetry about Ireland or 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 anything sort of changed the world. Um, and the line before is now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. Or uh, ra- let me go two lines back. He writes, "Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, where executives would never." want to tamper flows on south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs raw towns that we believe and die in it survives a way of happening a mouth so actually some a couple little notes about that beautiful zugma uh raw towns that we believe and die in so the in operates the preposition at the end of that phrase operates with believe and with die raw towns that we believe in and die in now does believe in mean where we like have religion and go to church where we exercise belief or does it mean that they are raw towns that we believe in and that we die in but in some sense, they're not real. They're just things that we believe in. The poetry makes nothing happen. The idea that, that poetry should make something... Well, uh, maybe poetry makes capital N nothing happen. Maybe poetry makes nothingness happen. But the idea that it does make, uh, that, that it, uh, does make something happen r- relies on an idea, an assumption that it should make something happen. That there is actually sort of a normative force that should attach to these things. And, and I, I suppose it's probably more accurate to say that poetry, by which I mean the whole ex post facto uh, rationalization mechanism, may make things happen, but they're never quite the things you'd plan or expect. And to a certain extent, when you put these things out into the world, you have to sort of accept that they will come back to you broken and tattered, uh, sort of fragmented, like a coat of motley that's been patched and patched and patched um, and patched again. Not surprisingly, Stuart Lee actually has a two-hour comedy show that's about this. <laughs> um, and then I guess the final thing I want to say about Spice is that it's, uh, you know, that I'm always suspicious of, of evolutionary explanations of things, of evolutionary psychology explanations of things, um, because the work that they seem to be doing rhetorically uh, is to tell you that it has to be the way it is, 
right? And that um, I think that we can actually thread a needle between the idea that evolution has selected for uh, people who, you know, regulate their metabolism or their homeostasis or whatever with, you know, certain dietary additions or whatever, and also that these additions are contingent, right? They could be quite other than um than what they uh than what they are so so for example like uh, i need so so for example uh the wasabi that you eat in your um in your american sushi restaurant is not wasabi not even a little bit it's horseradish that's been dyed green right and wasabi is a uh, a plant native to japan that is like horseradish but is actually a different plant right and um and so actually it's it's very beautiful that we called it the wasabi conjecture uh because yes even if even if you need wasabi in order to make your sushi safe. What you're eating is not actually wasabi. So both the sort of argument from evolution and the sort of the contingent argument can be true simultaneously uh, in this one little example. Um, and so it, it is, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think it is a good uh, exercise of humility to sort of... To, to go through life and imagine that, that uh, you know, it was not always thus, it does not need to be thus, and it may not be thus, um, may not be thus in the future. And uh, to accept that there are, you know, a, a lot of different ways, that, that these fragments you have shorn against your ruin, but uh, someone else might have grabbed onto some different fragments, and it makes them, you know, no less entitled to, um, no less entitled to enjoy a delicious tagine <laughs> spiced <laughs> with whatever they care uh, to, to shake into the, to the clay pot. Thanks for listening to the overthinking it podcast. Thanks to Pete and Mark for podcasting with me. Uh, we'll be back next week, but for now I'm hungry. <laughs> so let's go to <laughs> overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, probably it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. Spice. <laughs>say that i never know whether i'm quoting dune or those like porno advertisements from the 90s on cable <laughs> spice Pete, why not both, both.